Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Let me begin my my sermon with saying that we witnessed something a little bit short of a miracle happen just a few minutes ago, and it was a test, uh, and you didn't know this. Psalm 23 was the psalm, and you all went straight to that Anglican King James, baby. Amen. Actually, I don't even need to preach. That was, we got that. We're moving on. No, that was incredible. When I was in seminary, I had um, uh, one very eccentric uh, professor whom I loved uh, dearly. And uh, this professor would often go on uh, fairly long rants. Now, I say fairly long. The class would be maybe 50 minutes, and this would be, oh, maybe a five to ten minute rant. But that's, that's you know, uh, in terms of percentages of the class, that's a pretty good amount of rant. And, um, he, and this, they were always so, so brilliant and so funny. And this man was a, is, is a great theologian and a wonderful uh, man of God. And one time he went off on a rant about the phrase, um, let me see, the, the phrase here was, uh, oh, what did he say? When there is a paradigm shift. Have you heard this phrase here, paradigm shift? Well, he, he went on this long, uh, long diatribe, and here, here's what he said. He said, let me say this. In the past 50 years or so, in both the hard sciences and the soft sciences and in theology, people will find one factoid, and they'll come across this factoid, and all of a sudden, before you know it, they're screaming, and we have here in this factoid a paradigm-shifting piece of information. And he said, people use that all the time. And they use it quite often because they find a factoid and, well, they need to get a thesis published or dissertation published, and they'll say, well, here is a paradigm-shifting piece of information. And if you know anything about the phrase paradigm shift, it was actually coined uh, by a philosopher of science whose name um, was, uh, was Kuhn, was his last name. And he coined this to talk about um, moving to uh, basically like the Copernican revolution and how we understand our solar system or Newtonian physics. That was a paradigm-shifting moment where the fundamental um, axioms, the fundamental presuppositions were to be changed. That's, that's a legitimate paradigm shift. What does the professor went on and on? He said, Don't be up there in your sermons talking about in here we have a paradigm-shifting moment. Well, I'm here to tell you, actually, in our sermon, we have a paradigm-shifting moment for us as Christians. And let me get to the point here. And we see it in both of our texts, okay? Of course, in our beloved gospel reading from the Gospel of John and in our epistle reading. Because you see, when we as Christians, enter into the faith through faith and through baptism, there is a paradigm shift that is taking place. What the world tells us is good and good for us, Scripture and the teachings of the church oftentimes says, no, that's actually death for you. What the world says is good for you is death quite often. 
What the world says is death and awful is actually Christian virtue. You see, there is a paradigm shift, a legitimate one, when we come into faith. And this paradigm shift is also one that is taking place over time. No one comes into the faith, even the blind man who was healed. We're going to see that in that gospel, when he is healed, he doesn't just have an epiphany and the paradigm is completely shifted for him and he knows it all. No, there's even a progression with his understanding of who Jesus is. Remember first he says, well, the Pharisees say, well, how were your eyes open? And he answered, well, this man called Jesus. He can say there was a man called Jesus. He healed me. He begins there, but then it moves further up and further in, in the confession. Then he says, this man was in fact from God, because if this man was, um, was able to heal me, he must be from God. And then we move further and finally into him saying, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You see, for us as Christians, we are, we are having the paradigm of reality changed for us, but it takes us knowing God's Word and knowing God Himself to understand what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. Now, again, two passages, two understandings of this paradigm. I mentioned just a moment ago that even the blind man was moving further up and further in of his confession of who Jesus is. Well, let us stop and go to Ephesians 5 for a moment, because Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian church, the churches, plural, in Ephesus. If we know anything about Ephesus, and if you have actually been to present-day Ephesus, you know that one of the, a matter of fact, I think for the longest time, it was the largest temple was there, the temple, pagan temple, to uh, Artemis, the temple to Artemis. And there was so much um, sexual immorality going on. The way that the Ephesians, that is, not the Ephesian Christians, but this, the Ephesians at large, understood reality and what is true and good and beautiful, they were inverted in their understanding of these things. And the Christian faith was saying the exact opposite of these things. There is a paradigm shift going on. So if there is a paradigm shift, then Paul is saying in Ephesians 5, something that I want us to take away from this text here in Ephesians 5. And simply put, it's this. When you partner with sin, when I partner with sin and partner with those who promote sin and godlessness, we are receding from light into darkness. Are we not? We are receding from light into darkness. Another image maybe to help you has been helpful for me. The moment that you are baptized, maybe as an infant or a young child or even as an adult, the moment you're baptized, the Holy Spirit is given to you, you are marked as Christ's own forever, and then you confess the faith verbally. Say, Lord, I believe. You're brought into the kingdom of God, which of course is a beautiful thing and a wonderful thing. And so then we have Christ in us. We are in communion with him. So it's almost as if there's light just radiating from us because we are in the one who is light himself. But when we partner with darkness and sin, that light is covered up slowly in our lives. Paul says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The point of our Christian life is finally to love as God loves in Christ. So what does that mean then? For you and for me then, love itself is an act of sacrifice. We know Paul says, be imitators of God and do it in love as Christ gave himself up for us. That sacrifice on the cross is the perfect act of love, and we are to live into that. But Paul goes on to list a litany of sins, that is, um, a litany of darkness that we can participate in, and that when we participate in the darkness, we become those things. Here's what he says. But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. A paradigm shift for us. Sex itself, given within a marriage between a man and a woman, a good thing, a holy thing, a wonderful thing, can bring forth children, um, is, is there for pleasure and mutual joy. We see that. It's a beautiful thing. But the world inverts what is good. Inverts what is good makes it evil, and calls it good, trying to reverse what God has instituted. Or covetousness. You see, all these things, um, impurity, covetousness, sexual immorality, are all turning other people or their things in on ourselves, the exact opposite of love. Verse 4, Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. It is joking about sex or filthy talk or jokes that, that make fun of others or demean others. We should, there should be no place for that. But he says this, But instead, for you and for me as believers, in place of all that sexual immorality, covetousness, foolish talk, crude joking, all these terrible things, let there be Eucharist. Let there be thanksgiving to God. The other day, um, I was, was challenged to think through the link between us being thankful, us being thankful to what God or to God for what He has done for us, and us being able to receive His forgiveness and offer His forgiveness. And I think there is definitely a link between those two. But Paul goes on here to say something that, um, that I think ought to wake us up here. He says this in verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Let me remind you, beloved, you are light in the Lord. And what is light? Light, um, light gives us uh, the ability to see. Light cleanses. Um, light warms us. Light, of course, comes, and the metaphor says it comes from Christ, and it is Christ, and you are light, beloved. So don't partner with darkness, because when you partner with that darkness, you end up becoming the thing you're partnering with, and that's not who you are in Christ. Now again, when I started this sermon, I said that there's a paradigm shift that takes place over the life of a Christian. And most saints and theologians understood this because they knew that it was not a moment in time that everything was flipped upside down and you were perfect, of course. 
It's over time that we are learning to follow God in the new paradigm that he has given for us. And practice doesn't make us perfect, but it helps us, it helps us in living lives of holiness, practicing what God has given to us and what he has called good. So let us not partner with sin or with darkness. And he's writing to the Ephesians who are living in a, um, in a place, in a world, in a culture in which there is darkness all around. Don't partner with it. Now, to our gospel reading. Moving from Ephesians 5 now to John 9 in this wonderful, very sacramental event where our Lord uses uh, spittle and mud and, and, and ends up cleansing this, this wonderful uh, beggar, this blind man. We see here, though, that we can find ourselves so self-righteous in this life. This is clergy and laity. We can find ourselves so self-righteous and we can claim that we see what is true and good and beautiful in our own eyes and we know it and we see it that we become like the Pharisees here where Jesus says, look, you guys can see. You can actually physically see. This guy couldn't. You could see. But you are actually blind. Would that we never in our self-righteousness be moved to that point in which we see a work of the Lord, a work of God in our midst, maybe in the midst of our family, your marriage, this church family, and we, our first response is, I don't know, was this, was this, you know, I don't know, was the Lord in this, was he not in this? No, our first response should be to go to the word of God and in prayer where the Lord is to confess it and to say it and not let our self-righteousness lead us astray. I mean, isn't just the, the irony here um, powerful? Let me read towards the end here. This is really where the irony hits in. Of course, I'm skipping over so much, but, but I've got a point here. Let's go to verse um, 37. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, that is the blind man. You've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I'm the one who healed you. And his final iteration... Of, of knowledge here is this. The blind man says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. What a beautiful picture. The blind man of our salvation. Born, yes, into sin. Not sin that led to blindness, but sin um, that he was born into, like we all are. And he's moved by our Lord Jesus Christ to salvation. He is healed, and finally to confession and to worship. What a beautiful image. But Jesus in verse 39 says this. For judgment... I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. What a weird thing to say. I mean, can you imagine Jesus standing in our midst, maybe preaching up here saying, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Then he ends with this. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to Jesus, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. What's going on here? These Pharisees, in their own self-righteousness, are claiming that they see what is true. 
They know in and of themselves what is true and what is good, what is beautiful, what's going on here. And this man must have sinned, and that's the end of the story. And Jesus is saying, the fact that you claim that you know exactly what is going on has made you guilty. And matter of fact, you are as blind as this man was when he was born. You're blind. So what do we have here then in this story, this true story? Well, we need to take away, of course, that physical healing is a wonderful thing, and our Lord utilizes that oftentimes. But we see in specific here that, that um, physically, this blind man was healed, and God wants us to experience what he experienced physically, spiritually also. God wants us to experience spiritually what this man encountered and experienced in his life physically. That is to have eyes to see who God is and what he is doing. Um, have any of you all ever seen the movie? Um, it's an older movie um, uh, with Robin Williams entitled Awakenings. Has anyone ever seen this? Okay, maybe, okay, only four of you. Well, um, all right, well, let's have a little aside sermonette here for those four. If you haven't seen uh, the movie, I highly uh, recommend it. Um, it's basically, and it's a true story about um, a people that were in a nursing home that were older, that were suffering from what looked to be kind of dementia, and they were mute. And this, um, this kind of, uh, not a renegade, but this, this, this doctor decided to use dopamine in such a way that he gave it to them, and they began, these, these older persons began to wake up from being completely mute. They began to wake up and to speak. And the movie is so beautiful, not only because it's a true story, of course, but I find that it's so relevant in the way that we live as Christians. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I have been given the truth, and we, are, we have been allowed to wake up to see things as they actually are. And we know that because we see them in Scripture. The Holy Spirit reveals these things to us. But here's the deal. The forces of the devil and of the world and of sin are constantly trying to lull us back to sleep and back into darkness. It's a battle to stay awake, isn't it? It's a battle to stay awake. But here's the beauty. We can stay awake by God's grace through confessing sin. As Paul says there in, uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, that we can live in the light through confessing sin and through repentance. That is how we gain our muscles to stay awake in this life and to see the world as it actually is and to see ourselves as we actually are and then finally to move to thanksgiving, to say, Lord, we are sinful, but you have not counted that against us, but that through the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed. So, beloved, let us live in that light that we have been given. Because when we live in that light, we speak a word to those around us that is better than the world. Better than the words the world speaks. Because it's what's really true. And in that truth, people will come to faith. And that faith will, of course, look like, finally, the faith of the blind man who said, Lord, I believe. And he was moved to worship. Beloved, do not partner with sin. And do not let your self-righteousness hinder you from following the Lord Jesus and from listening 
to him. So, beloved, awake from your sleep and arise again and anew from the dead. And there is a promise here that Christ will shine on you. And if he's shining on you, then he is shining in this world for the salvation of others. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.